Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Families who've been impacted by substance use disorder and those who are in the recovery community probably have a lot of thoughts at the latest opioid drug settlement. Johnson & Johnson and three drug wholesalers will pay $26 billion to U.S. towns and cities for their role in the opioid epidemic. Now, Connecticut will get $300 million over the next 18 years, but where will that money go? And will this settlement deal and one reached in July between OxyContin manufacturer Purdue Pharma and some states impact the way opioids are marketed and prescribed? We'll talk about that with Georgetown University physician Dr. Adrian Fu Berman coming up. She directs Farmed Out, a Georgetown-based project that advances evidence-based prescribing and also educates healthcare professionals about pharmaceutical marketing practices. First, joining us now on the phone is Stephanie Almeida. She's a peer recovery support specialist at Wheeler in Bristol, and she specializes in medication-assisted treatment. Stephanie, welcome to our show. Uh, good morning, Lizzie. Thank you for having me. Now, just briefly for our listeners, when I say medication-assisted treatment, what do we mean? Um, it's a medication that assists you uh, with your recovery, uh, getting off of, um, you know, fentanyl or alcohol. And these are FDA-approved medications. Uh, so this has been available for some time, Stephanie? Uh, correct. I believe since 19, um, not too sure, 1984, I thought, but probably before that. And uh, here at Wheeler, we just do uh, buprenorphine, naloxone, and um, Vivitrol. So I understand that you were also in recovery, Stephanie, after many years of substance use disorder. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal story. Uh, when did uh, this disorder begin? Um, well, I was predisposed to alcoholism, um, you know, growing up. My father was an alcoholic. Um, and due to not having a lot of support um, like him, um, I didn't know how to uh, cope with a lot of things that were going on in my household. So I turned to uh, drugs and alcohol at a very young age. When you say young, how young? Uh, 12, 13 years old, uh, sixth, seventh grade in middle school. I, I moved from a um, town to a city. And again, I didn't have much support and I didn't know how to, uh, you know, do a healthy integration. And um, I turned to drugs and alcohol. At that point, there weren't school counselors. There wasn't much addiction um, warning signs like there is today. Um, and the counselors, you know, I was just really uh, labeled as a bad kid. That's hard to hear when you think about how children need support and that you weren't able to get that support at, at such a young age, uh, Stephanie. Uh, we know now uh, through uh, research that, you know, children that suffer from trauma, you know, they're at an increased risk for substance use disorder. This is something that um, affected you as well. It did. It did. 
And uh, I'm glad to see today, you know, I have a 25-year-old and a 12-year-old daughter. And um, I bring, I try to bring a lot of my recovery home. So one of the biggest things for me in their uh, in treatment was dialectical behavior therapy um, and cognitive behavior therapy, really learning how to control, that I had control over my thoughts. Um, and I didn't have to, um, you know, use drugs and alcohol. On, and, and there was another way to live. And so I see that they are slowly but surely bringing that dynamic into the school systems. I know my daughter um, has, you know, come home with emotion charts. You know, how are you feeling today? Um, and stuff like that. I think we have a long way to go, but at least they're starting to address, um, you know, the kids and how they're feeling and hopefully teaching uh, healthy coping skills. Well, that's good to hear. And so tell me how you uh, made it to recovery. What was the, the point in your life where you felt like you had the support and the resources uh, to be in recovery for a long period of time? Uh, well, I came into recovery late uh, after my second daughter was born. Um, I just drank alcohol and smoked marijuana up until it, uh, a, my um, OBGYN actually prescribed me uh, Tramadol and Xanax for my um, postpartum, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, premenstrual syndrome. Um, I didn't do pills up to that point. And, and then after that, that prescription uh, was prescribed, I, I didn't have to drink uh, anymore because that, that kind of took me where I needed to go. Um, I started overusing those. And then, um, you know, I found uh, opioids, Percocets, Thank God I never, you know, never found heroin. Um, that's only by God's grace, or I would have probably done it. Uh, so Percocets and um, Xanax, uh, benzodiazepines. Um, and they were continued to be prescribed because of my trauma, my history. Um, so they prescribed those, and, you know, they just wanted to know if I was in therapy. They didn't check. I could just say, yeah, of course I'm in therapy, you know. And I need more, I need more benzodiazepines. I need more Xanax because my life is tough. And they kept going up and up and up on the dose. Um, until, like I said, my second daughter was born and, um, you know, uh, my job, my job performance started going downhill. Um, I lost my job in 15 years and um, my life kind of fell apart uh, into shambles and DCF came into my life and intervened and I had a really good DCF worker thank God you know he saw my older daughter um, my she was 13 at the time she was a AP student um, she went to a magnet school and he knew that this wasn't my baseline you know um, that I had potential he must have saw that uh, that potential in me and um, I had to go to Wheeler Clinic actually I treated for my substance abuse and um, mental health at Wheeler Clinic and um, I was mandated five days a week back then, four, four hours a day, and I came in, in denial. I didn't have a problem because my, my medications were being prescribed, um, and I didn't do heroin or smoke crack, so that to me was an addict, even though, you know, my alcoholism had taken a good part of my life. Um, and I started listening, and I started getting it, and I, and I felt finally I, I found a place where I belonged. And so medication-assisted treatment helped you. So you were prescribed Suboxone? I was. I was early on in my recovery for a short period of time, and then later on um, for pain management. 
And so now talk about full circle. Now you're helping people in recovery at Wheeler with medication-assisted treatment. And so how do you talk to uh, your uh, patients or clients about your experience, your lived experience, and, and how they should approach uh, this kind of treatment? Uh, um, you know, just really being able to sit down and talk to people and being present with them and letting them know uh, there's something that changes when you say, I'm in recovery. There's something that shifts. You can almost see it in their face. Um, it's, it's, it's a sense of peace, like, oh, you get it. I'm not going to be judged. Um, people are really worried about being judged coming into recovery. Um, you already have the shame of, of using um, and, you know, uh, whatever you've done in the past to get the drugs and just being uh, able to have a listening ear um, and spend, you know, maybe as much time as needed to really build that relationship with uh, um, those clients and letting them know that, you know, we are a team here and the clinical piece is very important, um, you know, because you need to learn how to live differently. So people are trying to come in, they're trying to get medication-assisted treatment without doing behavioral health. And it's, it is, it's, it's uh, medication-assisted treatment is medication and therapy. So you really need to take advantage of the therapy or you're not going to learn uh, how to live any differently. You're just going to not, you know, not use drugs. And those, those behaviors, those unhealthy behaviors and those habits are still going to be there. You're hearing Stephanie Almeida here on Where We Live. She's a peer recovery support specialist at Wheeler in Bristol. She specializes in medication-assisted treatment, and today she helps people with uh, treatment uh, and other ways of helping them also in recovery. Uh, when we talk about medication-assisted treatment, do you run into uh, some clients where there's a stigma, where they think, well, if, if I have had a substance use disorder for some time and now I'm taking medication, you know, is that really going to help me? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, people come in um, and they're, you know, a lot of the recovery community, actually, uh, that stigma is out there. Um, so you're not really clean if you are on medication-assisted treatment because it, it does have an opioid uh, piece to it. Um, so uh, it, they say that you're not clean. And, you know, abstinence is always the um, goal, the primary goal. Um, but uh, medication-assisted treatment, just to be clear, it does not replace one drug for another. It is a medication. Um, and, it, you know, you, you should be on it as long as you need to be. But for certain, uh, long enough to change your behaviors. Um, you know, like I referred to before, um, you can't sit in, in uh, IOP or, you know, a three-hour class while you're thinking about using drugs or where you're going to get your next fix. Um, so this medication really assists um, with those cravings um, and uh, long enough so hopefully you will be receptive to coming in and, and getting the help that you need. And, and that's, that is multifaceted. That is, you know, behavioral health. That's community support. I'm here um, as a resource, as an advocate, as a person with lived experience, just to be that extra, extra help um, for those people that uh, need that. Mm. 
We know that recovery is ongoing. It's a lifelong process, even for people like you, Stephanie, uh, who are working with people in recovery. And so what's your message to people who worry about um, being able to maintain this and they know that the struggle is real? I mean, how do you get support even today? Uh, well, personally, I, you know, I have a toolbox. So I talk about a recovery toolbox. We talk about a wellness toolbox. Um, and I didn't have a toolbox growing up. So today I have a recovery toolbox. And when I'm struggling, um, I tend to, I, I, I know my warning signs of, uh, you know, not so much drugs. Um, it's not so much drugs that, you know, I'm worried about running to. It's more the behaviors. Um, that I start seeing um, that become, uh, make me aware. And then I pull out my toolbox and I have to utilize all my tools. So I have to, you know, and I, and I constantly, you know, celebrate recovery uh, was my pathway to recovery. And everybody has their own pathway. And I'm here to share different pathways, of course, with people um, because my way isn't going to be everybody else's way, but I stay connected to my community. Um, and that's what I, I tell people. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a meeting. People are really tired of hearing meetings, meetings, meetings. Let's just talk about a, a sober support system. Um, volleyball, bowling, um, you know, darts. Um, wherever you can find yourself in a place that alcohol and drugs are not the focus um, and, and people are trying to live in, in a healthy way, you know, let's do it. Let's get you connected. Mm. That must have been so difficult, though, in the pandemic where uh, people uh, were not getting connected to services because they weren't able to, or we've seen the number of overdose uh, deaths arising. Uh, Stephanie, you've seen that firsthand with the people you've worked with? Yes, it's, it's been it's been very sad. Um, you know, I, I like to always look at things uh, two ways, you know. So, yes, we were isolated um, for people that didn't have anybody or were in abusive relationships. It was a horrible thing, horrible. Uh, I, I can't even imagine the hopelessness that they felt. Um, but uh, working for Wheeler, and we, we, we were able to get telehealth up and running uh, immediately. I was so impressed with how fast we were able to get people connected. Um, and then, of course, you know, you had the Wi-Fi issues and the minute issues and, and stuff like that. But I can tell you that one positive thing that came out of the pandemic was people being able to um, be in a group without actually physically being there because a lot of people have social anxiety. So they're afraid to be in a group because they're afraid to be judged. They don't, they don't know what to say. Um, there's just fear around that. So what the, the telehealth did for some people um, was uh, allow them to be in a group setting um, get to know people, um, see how it works um, without going out of their own house. So they were able to connect. And, and now um, everything's virtual. So that can be a pro, pro you know, and a con. Um, is, are people utilizing that instead of going to physical meetings? Sure. Um, you know, the virtual meetings are not to replace the physical meetings because we really need to learn, you know, make relationships. But um, at least they're connecting People are connecting. Um, and uh, like I said, virtual, everything's pretty much virtual now. 
You're hearing Stephanie Almeida here on Where We Live. She's a peer recovery support specialist at Wheeler in Bristol. As we talk about resources in the community to help people in recovery, coming up after the break, we'll continue hearing from Stephanie Almeida and talking with Sabrina Trochi, who's the president and CEO of Wheeler. You can join us, too, if you or a family member is in recovery. What kinds of supports are there for you? Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Connecticut officials say money from a recent opioid settlement, $300 million, will be used towards addiction counseling and for medication-assisted treatment. This is important in light of news that overdose deaths have increased in recent years. Last year in Connecticut, more than 1,300 people died of accidental overdose. It's a nearly 15% increase from 2019, an 88% increase since 2015. With us on the phone today, Stephanie Almeida. She's a peer recovery support specialist at Wheeler. And joining us now on Zoom, Sabrina Trochi, who's the president and CEO of Wheeler. I should note Wheeler is a community health center in Connecticut that provides addiction treatment and behavioral health, among other services. Sabrina, welcome to our show. Good morning. Very happy to be here with you this morning. We heard from Stephanie uh, that demand for uh, Wheeler services uh, for people in recovery, um, you know, it's, it's something that was needed, especially in the pandemic. And so can you talk about what you saw firsthand? Sure. Um, so in 2020, as the pandemic started to roll, um, roll out, what we started to see is an increase in reported use of both opioid and alcohol and other substances. Um, at the same time, because of many of the restrictions that were put into place, we started to see a decrease in individuals actually presenting for treatment. Um, when you look at some of the data, for example, the, the Kaiser Family Foundation um, came out with a report in, um, in May 2021 that reported that over 29% of adults in Connecticut um, reported symptoms of anxiety, depression. Um, we looked at some of the um, 
of the opioid data, we know that Connecticut and a number of other um, states across the country have had an opioid crisis that has been ongoing for a number of years. The pandemic did not um, uh, result in, in the uh, opioid pandemic going away. What we started to see is actually an increase in individuals um, with accidental overdose and individuals um, needing care because of opioid addiction. Um, I think Stephanie did a really nice job in, in talking a little bit about why we saw an increase in individuals struggling with opioid disorders. Um, the COVID pandemic posed a number of challenges to the general population, but when you look at the challenges specifically to someone who, um, who may be in early recovery um, of, of a substance use disorder or an opioid use disorder, these challenges were, were profound. Um, many individuals lost their jobs. Their social and family interactions were limited and or absolutely ceased. Um, the pandemic itself was, was uh, led to increased depression and, um, and anxiety. Many of these components um, may be triggers for someone to initiate or someone to relapse um, back into substance use and or substance abuse. And so um, at Wheeler, where um, in 2020, we, um, to, to, uh, to uh, 2021, um, what we're seeing today is a 28% increase in individuals presenting for behavioral health. That wow. is a significant increase in individuals presenting for care. So we know that the governor and lawmakers, they must know about this demand. Uh, you and other behavioral health uh, providers in our state, you rely on state funding and some federal funding. And so how has the state responded to your needs to address this demand? So many components of Connecticut's behavioral health, mental health, and substance abuse treatment systems and recovery supports are state grant funded. Um, those state grant funds have not had a cost of living or inflation increases since uh, 2007. That's 14 years of having flat grant funded programs um, in an environment where we need to um, uh, pay more to recruit and retain providers. We need to pay more for health insurance for our staff. Um, we've had to come up with creative ways and partnerships with other public and federal entities in order to, to continue to keep our doors open and to continue to expand. Um, during this legislative session, the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance, which is a statewide association of community nonprofits, we rallied very strongly um, to our uh, during the legislative session and um, and came up with a dollar amount of about $461 million that needed to be invested within um, behavioral health nonprofit providers. We came up with that dollar amount um, based on the fact that since 2007, we have not received any of the inflation cost um, and, and really have not kept pace with um, with where we are today. Um, 
Those advocacy efforts did result in an increase of $60 million for the biannual budget. So um, we will begin to see some of those increases in this fiscal year, um, the 2022 fiscal year, and then in the 2023 fiscal year. Um, while we're very grateful for that increase, it really does not get us to where we need to be today. And um, as you can imagine, with COVID, with the increase in community services that are needed, the, um, the impact of COVID and needing to ensure that we have the personal protective equipment um, for our staff, for our patients to ensure that we can continue to offer face-to-face um, care that is safe for staff and for patients. Um, we needed to make a number of modifications to our sites. Um, once again, to ensure safety, when you look at all of those costs that, that we've incurred, um, the $60 million comes nowhere close to, um, to making community behavioral health providers whole in, um, in, in being able to continue to expand and, and provide the care that we know our communities and our patients need. Uh, you said that while uh, you and other providers are grateful for the 60 million, as you mentioned, not even close to the 461 million that you requested. And you know that the demand is there when you look at the, the numbers and you talk with uh, your patients, your clients. Uh, so what is your re what is your reaction, really, when the governor and the legislature do not fund this adequately because of the, the long-term consequences on, on many communities across our state, uh, Sabrina. We will continue to advocate at the state level, um, but or Wheeler and organizations like Wheeler um, are looking for alternative partnerships. Um, we're partnering with private and public foundations. We're looking for um, federal funding opportunities that as a nonprofit we could pursue individually that would um, help support the expansion of behavioral health services. Um, so for example, Wheeler currently has several pending federal grants um, through the, the Federal Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, one specifically to expand medication-assisted treatment services in our um, Waterbury Family Health and Wellness Center. Um, that those dollars would help pay for components that are currently not paid for through the Connecticut Medicaid program. For example, um, community health workers to go into the community and to reach out and to engage individuals to come to, to services. Um, so while, while we're excited that, um, that we're seeing a 28% increase in patients presenting to care, we know there are patients that will not um, present um, and do need supports in engaging in an outreaching and in, in trying to work with them to bring them into care. Um, so we want to reach those individuals that are not walking in that we know need access to care.
So let's um, the go. Other, I, well, the Sabrina, other, I wanted oh. Sabrina. I wanted to mention um, my question related to the state uh, not adequately funding these services. I mean, we know that Connecticut's got billions of dollars now in a rating day fund. There has been uh, a ton of money sent from the federal government to help uh, when we think about what COVID relief is, and to think that there is a demand, especially for behavioral health uh, during the pandemic, and that the state mm-hmm. is not adequately funding that to re- to meet the demand that's in our state. I mean, that is problematic. Now we're hearing that there are millions of dollars that will be coming to the state through this latest opioid settlement. And so uh, what assurances do you have that the, the, the needs will be addressed when there is this money there, but how it will be funneled? We will continue um, Wheeler and and um, through the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance, which um, we will continue to advocate um, we will continue to make our case. I think the um, we have a lot of data. The state has a lot of data. The state recognizes that the opioid crisis is continuing um, to be a, a, a significant crisis and will remain a crisis beyond um, COVID pandemic. And um, and steps are needed to um, to really address the opioid issue. Um, they know um, we've made it very clear to the state that there are providers like Wheeler and others in the state that are ready and willing to expand, enhance, and do more within our communities. Um, but in, in order for us to be able to to offer those additional services and supports, we need the state to invest those dollars in um, in uh, substance abuse treatment in earlier intervention services um, and and really looking at an approach that uh, that is a lifespan approach. So getting to children and adolescents at earlier stages around prevention and earlier intervention through to the um, adult treatment continuum. Mm. We heard from Stephanie earlier about how telehealth was uh, something that really helped in the pandemic. And we know that uh, Stephanie is one among many uh, peer support specialists in the community. And so I want to know, you know, how does Connecticut Medicaid cover these services before the pandemic? How do we rate when it comes to other states and how they uh, fund these types of resources? Prior to the pandemic, Connecticut Medicaid um, was one of, I believe, the only state in the country that did not um, provide reimbursement for any telehealth services, um, which, which is actually very, very fascinating when, when you look to see what Connecticut did. Um, so once the pandemic um, uh, was in full effect, Connecticut Medicaid did put in emergency um, orders for telehealth to become a um, reimbursable service, which meant providers, uh, Wheeler and many providers like Wheeler had to literally overnight establish a telehealth program when we had never had one in place. Um, and, you know, Stephanie mentioned we we were very fortunate that um, that Wheeler was able to, to literally bring our program up within three days and to be able to offer our patients um, immediate access through telehealth. And um, so during the, uh, in March, April, we were approximately 90% of all of our services were via telehealth. Um, And we felt that that was the best modality for many of our patients. 
Um, today, we're the opposite. We're uh, approximately 90% um, in person. And so while we, while we continue to offer telehealth services to patients, um, we are recognizing that in behavioral health, in addiction treatment, the ability to see a patient face-to-face is very critical. Um, and so th- there's, there's components that may be missed in a telehealth visit that um, when, you're, when you're sitting in front of a patient or across the patient, um, that you're able to um, identify additional potential triggers. You're able to um, identify any additional concerns. And so um, our model will continue to be a hybrid model, recognizing that many of our patients, because of the co-occurring medical, um, behavioral health, and um, addiction issues, do need to have in-person contact. Mm-hmm. Before we head to break, uh, Sabrina, talk uh, talk through your 24-7 helpline and with the demand, how will you be expanding? How do you hope to expand? Sure. So um, our substance abuse access line is a 24-7 line that is available to um, anyone in the state. Um, it is funded through the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. What we saw between... Um, July 2020 and June 2021 is over 28,000 calls being received. That represents over a 100% increase in calls compared to the pre-pandemic numbers that we were, or calls that we were seeing. What we do with callers is help facilitate treatment um, for, or, or access to treatment for substance abuse. Um, Disorders. So, uh, for example, if someone is in need of of a a detoxification program, we will find a program for them in the state. We will coordinate transportation if transportation is an issue, and we will get that patient to that um, detoxification center as soon as possible. In addition to that, we, um, we offer lots of information on where individuals can access medication assisted treatments or Narcan. Um, We're often getting calls from uh, family members that are concerned for a loved one. And we encourage that um, that they have access to Narcan. Narcan is um, a life-saving medication that um, potentially can reverse the effects of someone going through an overdose. And, And so it is critical for family members that are concerned for loved ones to have um, Narcan available in the event that it's needed because we do know it does save lives. Well, Sabrina Trochi, thank you so much for talking us through the demand that you're seeing at Wheeler. Sabrina is president and CEO. Again, this is the community health center that provides behavioral health services and substance use disorder treatment uh, throughout our state. And Stephanie Almeida was here. She's a peer recovery support specialist at Wheeler. Thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This is where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, there are disclosure laws uh, that between uh, drug manufacturers and if there's conflicts of interest between them and physicians. We want to find out if that has done anything uh, to uh, help stem this epidemic and curb the prescription of opioids. That conversation after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucien Alpathanchel. We know the opioid epidemic has been a problem for many years. What safeguards are in place to prevent doctors from being influenced by drug manufacturers to prescribe certain medications? Under the Affordable Care Act, drug and medical device manufacturers must disclose payments or gifts given to doctors or teaching hospitals. But my next guest says research shows disclosure laws haven't done much to minimize conflicts of interest. On Zoom with us, Dr. Adrian Fu Berman, professor at the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology at Georgetown University Medical Center, and she's director of Farmed Out. Adrian, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Lucy. Nice to be here. I mentioned briefly there's this Physicians Payment Sunshine Act. Uh, tell us about it, and you know, have we seen a drop in opioid prescriptions by physicians across the country? Well, the Sunshine Act requires pharmaceutical manufacturers to report payments that they that they make to physicians, and um, certainly that that is important. Um, at, a few years ago, one out of twelve physicians was taking money from opioid manufacturers, but that's not the only way that opioid manufacturers or other drug companies affect physicians. Sure, they have drug reps um, and uh, sort of more traditional kinds of promotion, but the most dangerous and subtle kinds of promotion is education, continuing medical education, which most physicians in the country have to take, um, is a conduit for marketing messages. Professional societies are a conduit or a mouthpiece for marketing messages, and so are our patient advocacy groups. These groups, both the consumer and professional organizations, have been really important in going to legislators, policymakers, media, and um, essentially spreading disinformation um, um, about, about drugs and therapeutics, sometimes defending drugs that shouldn't be defended, whether they're coming up for approval or whether there are restrictions being considered for them. So of course, there have been uh, many proposed and implemented restrictions on opioids and opioid prescribing in various states. Um, and um, and um, some patient advocacy groups have um, have invaded against these sorts of uh, these sorts of restrictions. Unfortunately, opioid marketing is still going on today in the U.S. and also in other countries. So, talk us through that. So, how are opioid makers like Purdue and Johnson and Johnson still pushing these prescriptions? Uh, so. It, what my organization is, is, is working towards is the separation of pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies from education, from medical education, whether it's, it's medical students or residents or uh, physicians in practice, uh, they are never going to educate people in an objective manner. They shouldn't be expected to. So for example, the um, uh, some years ago, the FDA required opioid manufacturers to fund continuing medical education on long-acting opioids as part of what the FDA calls a REMS, a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. So they asked opioid manufacturers to fund educational um, activities for physicians. And my group did an analysis of, of these and found that they, they were full of marketing messages that would actually end up increasing opioid prescription rather than decreasing it. These messages are subtle. You have to look at a, a lot of activities in order to reverse engineer these marketing messages. But there are 
the marketing, the, the, there are always marketing messages in industry-funded education. Some of the and and just to go back to sort of you know uh, how opioids how we we mm. we had you know we engendered an opioid epidemic in in the U.S. It was opioid manufacturers who, through key opinion leaders, through professional societies, um, get, perpetuated the message that we have an epidemic of undertreated pain in this country, and that pain is best treated by opioids. But gee, physicians are really reluctant to prescribe opioids and patients seem reluctant to take them. They have this pesky fear of addiction, which is just wrong. (laughs) And we need to educate physicians and patients that opioids are a fine fine, um, therapy for chronic pain, for backache, for arthritis, um, for, uh, for things that opioids should never be prescribed for. And um, that that is unfortunately why we have an opioid epidemic in this country. Mm. Oh, I'm thinking back to when I've been prescribed opioids, and it's through the dentist. Is this something that still needs more work in educating dentists and, and the, the drugs that are prescribed to patients? Absolutely. Dentists are actually the sixth highest prescribers of opioids in the United States. Um, they prescribe uh, more than 8% of opioids in the U.S., and they prescribe more opioids to adolescents age 10 to 19 than any other specialty. So it's through the dentist that adolescents are often first exposed to opioids. And um, of course, adolescents are more vulnerable um, to developing substance abuse disorder. So this is a real problem. We really need to, we've, we've just um, conducted a survey of dentists and opioids that will be uh, will be published in a few months. Um, but what, what, what we found is that even though opioids are not the best option for treating acute dental pain, opioids do nothing for inflammation and uh, inflammation is a very, um, uh, very prominent <laughs> after dental um, surgery. So what we found is that even though opioids are not the best option for treating acute dental pain, in practice, a lot of dentists prescribe um, opioids. Um, and many adolescents who misuse um, prescription opioids, they misuse medications from their own prescriptions, and more than a quarter of those prescriptions were from dentists. Mm-hmm. Well, Adrian, earlier we were talking about the demand that we're seeing in our state, of course, the demand across our country as well, and unfortunately, the number of accidental overdose deaths rising in 2020, I believe more than 93,000 people died in the U.S. from drug overdoses. Now, when we look at the information and what people are saying in terms of um, our officials and researchers, that a majority of these deaths are from synthetic opioids. So are prescription opioids as much of a concern? Absolutely, because prescription opioids are the gateway drug to heroin and fentanyl. Mm. So um, about 80% of, of, of heroin addicts started off on prescription opioids, sometimes prescribed, sometimes not prescribed. But prescription opioids are, are, are the gateway drug. Um, um, people may be prescribed opioids by their, their um, physicians, and then at some point their access may be um, cut off um, and um, heroin is cheaper. Um, it may be more accessible. So they may start getting heroin. And of course, a lot of heroin is cut by fentanyl. So um, we, we have a problem with opioid overuse and um, um, opioid um, 
deaths in this country, but we, it's it's really an artificial distinction to say that, oh, mm-hmm. this is due to heroin, it's due to fentanyl, it has nothing to do with prescription opioids. That is not true, and it is an industry marketing message to say mm-hmm. that. You're hearing Dr. Adrian Fu Berman, professor of the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology at Georgetown University Medical Center. She's also director of Farmed Out. And so talk through what some effective firewalls uh, between uh, physicians and these manufacturers. If the disclosure laws aren't cutting it, what needs to be done? Yes, unfortunately, I mean, the, 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 the Sunshine Act has given us really great opportunities to research the, the payments that have been made to physicians. But Disclosure doesn't actually decrease um, trust in, um, in physicians who are taking money, either among physicians and uh, actually patients um, may, may have some distrust of physicians who take, take money, but just on an anecdotal basis, I'll say that um, I, I find that often people are really unwilling to look up their doctors. because They, they don't want to know <laughs> that their doctors are taking a lot of money from pharmaceutical companies. It puts them... <laughs> Uh, you know, into a cognitive dissonance kind of situation where uh, they they don't want they don't want to affect the trust in their doctors. So disclosure is is important, but it is not the the answer. Um, unfortunately, every every uh, form of med- of information that physicians and other prescribers have, because a lot of prescriptions for opioids are written by physician assistants and nurse nurse um, practitioners as well. So that that's an that that's also important. Um, but every source of information we have is unfortunately affected by industry. Um, our medical societies, our medical publications, um, continuing um, medical and continuing education. So it's really important for prescribers to choose never to take any uh, any industry funded medical education. We have links on the Farmed Out website to non industry funded. Uh, continuing medical education, it's important for them to rely on sources of information that at least are not sponsored by pharma, like drug therapeutics newsletters, um, the medical letter, um, for example, or there's a wonderful French drug therapeutics uh, letter called Prescrire, which is available um, in in English and I think is the best uh, newsletter in, in, in the world. Um, but there's certainly, and, and um, prescribers need to educate themselves about industry marketing tactics. And there, there, again, there are a lot of tools and publications that are available um, on, on the Farmed Out website. Um, there's been a lot of, of talk about how, oh, opioid prescribing rates have dropped in the US and they have, and that is great, but we still prescribe more opioids than any other country in the world. Uh, when I was looking, reading your, your paper uh, that you co-authored, A Ray of Sunshine, Transparency in Physician-Industry Relationships is Not Enough, uh, I think the anecdote about philosopher Carl Elliott really uh, <laughs> uh, highlights uh, the, the issue with transparency. Did you want to share that with our listeners? Yes, totally love that. Uh, yes, um, for people who think that disclosure uh, fixes the problem. Um, Carl Elliott has said, if your spouse was having an affair, is it enough that they just tell you about it? Or do you want them to actually stop? <laughs> and uh, yeah, disclosure doesn't fix the problem. It's just the first mm-hmm. step. Uh, before we run out of time, you mentioned patient advocates uh, for people that are dealing with long-term pain or other conditions, and they feel that a lot of these prescribing rules um, impact them unfairly. I mean, how do you respond to that and these patients that you know really feel like they're suffering, and what are the other alternatives for them? Yes, these patients are suffering. They absolutely are suffering, and um, uh, we we don't have enough 
research into what really works well for chronic pain, opioids do not work well for chronic pain. For most patients, they they don't work well for chronic pain and they actually decrease quality of life. They increase depression, um, they can cause um, heart problems and they decrease the immune um, the, the immune response, they, they cause a lot of problems that are not um, not just opioid use disorder, um, but more importantly, they don't actually work very well for for chronic pain. They can actually increase pain. There is a there is a a condition called hyperalgesia, um, which people actually become more sensitive to pain when they're on chronic opioids. It's very difficult to to get off opioids. And, and um, I, you, you've, you've heard from some wonderful speakers today about the importance of medication-assisted treatment and the importance of therapy within, within that treatment. And it, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, there is an artificial distinction that, that came from industry and that pain patients perpetuate that there are the legitimate pain patients and then there are the abusers and that it's fine to use chronic opioids, there shouldn't be any restrictions on uh, the legitimate pain patients, but there should, we, we should just be trying to stop abuse. And that 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 is a distinction um, that was made by a member of the Sackler family um, as uh, essentially a marketing tool um, to try to protect their their market. And it's it's very, of course, it's very difficult um, to um, that these, as they're called, legacy patients should not be cut off opioids. Um, that is the wrong thing to do. They 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 need to be uh, they need to be tapered. Uh, many of them um, need to go on medication assisted treatment. Um, they should absolutely be cared for. But these patients should not be affecting laws and regulations. <laughs> Um, that are are meant to reduce the overprescribing of opioids that is still going on to this country and is also uh, being exported to other countries. You mentioned Purdue Pharma. We know that uh, some states have agreed to a $4.5 billion settlement with Purdue. And uh, we know states like Connecticut, they're opposed, and they're also opposed to the Purdue bankruptcy plan. I mean, I guess to end, when we think about uh, the consequences of this opioid epidemic, uh, the people at the center of it, uh, there is concern that the wrongdoing, they'll still get away with um, the the long-term sacrifices that people have made, families and lives that have been lost. Absolutely. I mean, the Sackler family is definitely getting away with this and the company itself. There's many um, different forms of of Purdue Pharma. Munda Pharma is their international um, arm and they have other companies as well. And uh, well, thank you, Dr. Dr. Adrian Fu Berman. We're out of time. We appreciate your time today. So Jatha Srinivasan produced today's show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.